Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I do have another comment, and it's really exciting to get uh, two comments that I can read two weeks in a row. So this uh, this lady writes, uh, Dear Mr. Leap, thank you to you and your guests. So I'm assuming she's talking about my sweet wife, Deborah, who will be back in a couple weeks. She says, thank you for the time and effort you put into this program each week. I am visually impaired and appreciate hearing what just the best literature has to teach us from these great books. So take care. And uh, uh, she says, thank you again. So that's really great to hear. And I know there are a lot of people out there uh, listening to JBL. And it's really great that you keep listening. I know I'm getting more and more likes on Facebook, so I know that the numbers are increasing out there. And so uh, uh, just keep listening and keep sending me comments. I really appreciate that. Well, the last time I was discussing George Washington as an agricultural pioneer, and one of the last points I was making is that uh, he's really a, a very detailed person with managing his time. And I thought what I might do to to, uh, to open this up today, we're going to take a little bit of a different turn today in the program, but I thought I might read you a couple paragraphs from Chernell about what a day in the life of George Washington would really be like. And uh, I, I think this is just really um, fascinating. And uh, the reason why it's so fascinating to me is I need, I really need to start scheduling my time better. And uh, it seems like that's a, that's a constant struggle for me, and I have decided I'm going to take it on now that I've been reading George Washington. But here's what Chernow says on page 119. He says, Washington benefited from the unvarying regularity of his daily routine and found nothing monotonous about it. Like many thrifty farmers, he rose before sunrise and accomplished much work while others still slept. Prior to breakfast, he shuffled about in a dressing gown and slippers and passed an hour or two in his library reading and handling correspondence. He devoted time to private prayers before Billy Lee laid out his clothes. Now remember, Billy Lee was his personal servant, and uh, they became very good friends. And eventually, uh, and, you know, after the Revolutionary War, he did give Billy Lee his freedom. But, but uh, Billy Lee laid out his clothes, brushed his hair, and tied it in a queue. Washington liked to examine his stables before breakfast, inspect his horses, issue instructions to the grooms. Then he had an unchanging breakfast of corn cakes, tea, and honey. So, so George Washington was so scheduled, he ate the same breakfast. And uh, I kind of like that because I do that too. I eat just about the same breakfast every day. Uh, every now and then, maybe on the weekend, I'll mix it up a little bit. But listen to this. After breakfast, Washington pulled on tall black boots, mounted his horse, and began the prolonged circuit of his five farms where he expected to find hands hard at work. And uh, uh, even here at uh, 
Herbert W. Armstrong College, even though we might be teaching or might be on the radio, we still have other office um, uh, things to take care of, and we're expected to be at work, uh, you know, before 8 and, and working at our desk at 8 o'clock. And, uh, uh, you know, that that's a, that's a talent and an ability that George Washington had, and we need to, we certainly need to follow his example. He says, once again, he was a diligent boss, not a gentleman farmer. Each day he rode 20 miles on horseback and personally supervised field work, fence construction, ditch drainage, tree planting, and dozens of other activities. An active presence, he liked to demonstrate how things should be done, leading by example. One startled visitor expressed amazement that the master often works with his men himself, strips off his coat, and labors like a common man. Now, that's true leadership, but it's also uh, someone that really loves his job, loves his work. Washington couldn't bear anything slovenly. He's, this is a quote from, from George Washington. I shall begrudge no reasonable expense that will contribute to the improvement and neatness of my farms, for nothing pleases me better than to see them in good order and everything trim, handsome, and thriving about them, he advised one estate manager. Another quote, Nor nothing hurts me more than to find them otherwise, and the tools and implements laying wherever they were last used, exposed to injuries from rain, sun, etc. So so even George Washington was, was uh, he not only cared that his workers worked hard, but he, he really cared that they took care of their tools. And uh, I know growing up, I think I mentioned the last program, we did a lot of gardening. And my father was very fastidious about taking care of our garden tools. And if we didn't take care of the tools, I mean, we, we got into to trouble. And so, so uh, you know, it's, it's just if you're going to do a job, you need the right tools. You need to take care of the tools you have. And so George Washington really saw that. Chernow uh, goes on. No detail was too trivial to escape his notice, and he often spouted the the uh, Scottish adage, "Many mickles makes a muckle." That is, tiny things add up. So I thought that's that's a that's kind of funny. Uh, you can remember that. Many mickles make a muckle, and so if you want to be a muckle, you mess around with your tools. So so uh, anyway. Washington then, at, uh, after working all day, made sure that he returned for dinner precisely at 2.45 p.m. when the first bell sounded for the large midday meal. According to legend, the, the clatter of his approaching hooves often coincided with the bell's loud clang. So he was right on time. Um, Washington then washed, dressed, powdered his hair, and appeared in the dining room by the stroke of three. He preferred a dinner of fish from the Potomac and typically ate with a hearty appetite. In this heavy drinking era, he could polish off three or four glasses of amber-colored wine known as Madeira without being thought a heavy drinker. The cloth was then removed, and Washington would lift his glass with his habitual toast to all our friends. He then retired to his library before a light supper. Before going to bed at 9 o'clock, he would often read aloud to the family from the newspaper or from sermons on Sunday evenings, or joining a game of cards or backgammon. And so so that was the life of our first president, George Washington. And I, I thought that that is, uh, you know, it's really a great picture 
And uh, I know that uh, we have to get up early, my wife and I, to take care of everything. And uh, But sometimes we don't get to bed early enough. And so uh, sometimes the mornings are a little groggy. And so we, we, we have to change that. So what, what I want to do now is, uh, again, I want to build on this uh, idea of George Washington being the farmer and the and uh, but also how how he was so dedicated to um, you know being uh, let's say very dedicated to his time management that uh, that I, I want to just kind of now build on that program and then I, I want to discuss George Washington as architect and builder. So why is this important? Well, maybe I haven't made this clear enough as we've gone through, like even the Churchill programs, but I'd like to kind of make it clear today. So when we study these great leaders, uh, like, say, Winston Churchill from England and now George Washington from America, it's obvious that God has prepared these men for their jobs. And so so if, if even if you look at, let's say, if you go back and listen to our programs on Churchill— uh, we learned that that Winston Churchill believed this fact. I mean, here he spent all that time, 10 years he was out of politics, but he believed that he was prepared by all that experience to, well, get ready for World War II and to really save Western society. And I believe that George and Martha Washington experienced life in a very similar way. And uh, these two, George and Martha Washington, remind me so much of Winston Churchill and his wife, Clementine. And uh, uh, you could almost you, you could almost see if they, if they were ever alive together, they would be bosom buddies because they they, they had the same desires. And uh, you know, Winston Churchill was just uh, really structured in how he ran his day, and he was very focused on his day. Well, so was George Washington, and of course Martha was a was a great support uh, to George Washington, just as much as Clemmy was to to him. So, so when we think about George Washington, I mean, if you look at his time, even uh, you know, very early on in his military experience, I mean, Winston Churchill had this incredible military experience. You know, that was preparing him for something. Then, when uh, when he married Martha and he became inheritor of all these big estates, uh, you know, he had to learn how to take care of the land. He had to learn to take care of, of people, and really. Uh, when when people saw his estates for the first time, it's like they were going to its own city. And so, so I mean, he had vast amount of land, and there was a lot of people working for him. And so, so you see, I believe God was getting him ready, well, to build the greatest single nation on earth. And so, so he started George Washington like he does every man. Uh, he started them out very slow. Let me read to you. Um, right from Chernow. This is like, we're going to go back a little bit to page 109. And uh, um, the, the thing is, um, when when uh, George was out, you know, fighting the French and Indian Wars and he was away from home, uh, someone else was taking care of his property. And uh, when he came back, he really found a very, well, disconcerting situation. And uh, this is what Chernow says about all this. For the first six years of marriage, as he devoted mounting resources to growing tobacco, George Washington was a hostage to the fortunes of that fickle crop. As noted, he had returned from his military adventures to discover Mount Vernon under his brother Jack's supervision 
in a scandalous state of disrepair. While off in the western hinterlands, he found it impossible to monitor business activities at home, which must have been profoundly distressing for someone of his meticulous work habits. As he worked to remedy matters, restocking the plantation, and constructing new buildings, he ended up squandering part of Martha's fortune. And so so the thing is, um, he couldn't stand the fact that Mount Vernon was being had, had really been run down. And so uh, he really did um, learn how to become an architect and really a builder. And, uh, you know, he, he uh, even when he began to, to um, let's say, go into wheat production, go into food production, he had to study. And uh, But, but the, here's what um, uh, Turner also says about him. He says, always receptive to innovation. He poured over agricultural treatises and experimented with oats, wheats, and barley, planting in soil from various corners of his property. Only in retrospect did he perceive the folly of staking his future on tobacco. The soil of Mount Vernon, he duly learned, had, had under a stratum of hard clay impervious to water, washing away the thin topsoil and leaving behind eyesore gullies. It posed insuperable challenges for a novice planter who had to contend with several seasons of drought and heavy rain, which only compounded the runoff problem. And so so the thing is, what we have to understand, and Jonathan brings this out, is is uh, he learned. He learned by what he experienced. And when you when when he saw Mount Vernon in such a, a disarray, well, he had to do something about it. And the thing is, is he had to become an architect. Now, when he came back, at, at, you know, from the French and Indian War, uh, he and Martha realized that they were going to have to do something about Mount Vernon. I mean, he he was in the the uh, the you know he was a vestryman at church. He was in the House of Burgess. I mean, he, he was moving up in social status. Uh, he had won a lot of respect because of, of you know, his, his efforts in the war. And so, so they knew that they were going to have to really improve the quality of the estate if they were going to, well, continue to grow and continue to, uh, well, actually rise to power. Now, here's what Johnson says on page 46. It says, in order to carry out such social duties properly and amply, Mount Vernon had to be transformed from a farmhouse into a Palladian mansion, not as grand indeed as those now appearing all over England, but of a similar general appearance. And so, so of course, I've had a wonderful opportunity to go to England many times. And, of course, our Edstone campus is, is on you know, 22 acres of beautiful land. It's a beautiful estate. And so, so here, Martha and George, in their Englishness, they had this, these, uh, really volumes of, of, uh, you know, uh, acreage that they had to, um, you know, convert into like this, this estate that they were used to or used to seeing in England. And if you think about it, I mean, George Washington was used by God to build a nation. And so so uh, here was his opportunity to train how to do that. Now, uh, here's what Johnson continues. He said, It is true to say that Mount Vernon, the house and the estate and the family that lived in it, were the most important things to Washington's life by far. 
First and last, they dominated his thought, gave purpose to his ambitions, and animated his patriotism and public service. Mount Vernon as a home and a farm went back to the 17th century as a Washington possession. So, so he had inherited this from his family. They became his in 1754 and his outright property in 1760. But it was from his marriage in 1759 that he began to improve and extend and beautify the house itself. And so, in other words, Martha came with some good money. And remember, that was a problem for him when he was trying to raise tobacco. And so, but, but uh, I mean, can you imagine, you know, inheriting all these properties? They all need to be developed. And then, you know, he, was, he, was, uh, he had this house, and he had to transform this house into a mansion. So there would have been a lot of pressure. But here's the point, and, and this is what Johnson brings out so well. It says, he had never had an architect as such, but he had handbooks and craftsmen. He liked to learn about the house improvement and do things for himself. Now, now that, that again, is, is leadership. And uh, I know I've had to learn over the years. I, again, I'm, I think my personality is matched to, uh, you know, to teaching and, and discussing literature and, and writing. And, uh, but I, I now own an acre of ground. And uh, I was trained somewhat in landscaping, and I do love landscaping. But uh, for me to, uh, you know, build something from wood, uh, that's a little bit of a challenge. But I've also learned, you know, there are books. And right now we have YouTube. I mean, uh, there's a lot of bad things on YouTube. But if you need to change a dryer element, I actually did it myself by watching a YouTube video. And so so, uh, I'm not saying I'm of the George Washington caliber, but maybe I could get there. But anyway, um, uh he he began to do things for himself. And, of course, I've never been to Mount Vernon. My wife has been there, and it is absolutely fabulous. And so so a lot of what you're seeing there is what, what was in George Washington's mind. And, of course, uh, uh, he worked on it and continued to work on it until his death. Now, it did fall into disrepair, and it has been restored. But, uh, uh, again, it, it, it was a, a big undertaking for him to do this. Johnson goes on to say, this is, again, still page 46, the extension of the farm into a mansion house began in 1759 and continued until Washington's death and beyond. As with Jefferson's Monticello, it was never finished until it began to fall into ruin many years after the great man was in his grave. Much of the work was carried out during the Revolutionary War and Washington's presidency. So here he was fighting in the war, he was also president, but he was also building Mount Vernon. There were always craftsmen and builders at work, and Martha had to put up with it. The site of Mount Vernon on its bluff overlooking the creek, where quite large ships came to anchor and tie up, was and is magnificent. And Washington's aim was to build the mansion so that its owner could look out on and enjoy the prospect. So he extended the original box by adding wings topping them with another story, and then, when he was already president, pulling it all together by a grand portico or loggia, running the entire length of the extended house. And so so if you would go to Mount Vernon today, and I really, uh, I, I have a brother-in-law that lives in that area, and uh, I think uh, next summer we're really going to try and, 
and make a visit out there just to see this. And, uh, you know, I understand it. it. I've seen pictures of it, but I've never seen it uh, uh, live. And so I, I do want to do that. But but here here's the, the things they dealt with. And, uh, again, Johnson brings this out. It says the earliest structure on the site, and that was around 1698, probably had only two rooms. The farmhouse Washington inherited, built by his father in 1735, had four rooms. The mansion, as extended by Washington, eventually had 18 main rooms, plus 14 auxiliary buildings, including the kitchen, which was not in the mansion. The new rooms included a large entrance hall, a library with the master bedroom above it, equipped with an exceptionally wide bed, which was six and a half feet long, on which Washington insisted, of course, he insisted on it because he was so tall. And it says, in a large banqueting hall with a Palladian window furnished only after the war. The roof was crowned with an octagonal cupola, and the mansion was surrounded by formal gardens laid out by Washington. A large walled kitchen garden, a smokehouse and greenhouses, and not least, a bowling green for the stately games after dinner. So, so this man had a lot of vision. And uh, again, he was building something. He was building something beautiful. And again, uh, you know, as we'll, as I said before, and as we'll see, uh, it's like he was building his own city. And of course, Williamsburg was not too far away, and that was a great city. And of course, the colonies—they were building these great cities: New York, Philadelphia. But Washington really paid a lot of attention to Mount Vernon. So it says. Uh, uh, Johnson continues, Washington paid great attention to detail using handbooks on architecture and decoration. It was his idea to put up the loggia. He also devised an outer cladding for the enlarged house consisting of yellow pine siding, grooved blocks of granite to resemble rustication, and covered it in several coats of white paint mixed with sand to give it the rough texture of stone. So the sides of the house were off-white in contrast to the roof of thick colonial shingles of reddish-brown, brown doors and green shutters. One visitor, whose name was Latrobe, described it as like an English gentleman's house of seven or eight hundred years. So, so again, you can see that, this, that, that uh, there was a really an artistic flair in, um, in George Washington's mind. So... When we look at our first president, he was really a balanced guy. I mean, he could throw a rock. Uh, he could uh, embarrass young people that thought they were stronger than he was. Uh, he loved to dance. And now uh, he, was, he became a great uh, agricultural pioneer, and now he's an architect. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, in terms of the internal decoration, Johnson continues, the internal decorations were also Washington's work. He insisted on the best, particularly in his study, which was linked to his master bedroom above by a private stair and was next door to the private dining room. The study had a Windsor fan chair, a swivel-seated desk chair made by Thomas Burling of New York in 1790, and eventually a new secretary desk made by John Aiken of Philadelphia in 1797. George Washington Park Curtis, who was raised at Mount Vernon, now this is his, his uh, 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 stepson, said the study was a place where no one entered save by direct order. It was very handsome with total privacy, necessary in a house where perpetual and elegant hospitality was absolutely required. So, um, you know, uh, 
not only was the house beautiful, but it was set up to be, uh, you know, a place where they could entertain guests and they could, uh, you know, do really nice things for people. Now, um, Johnson goes on to say, um, everything inside was done uh, after, uh, I'd say, like the English. And uh, um, Washington really loved things English when it was done well. I think I already read that. Now, uh, here, here's how he concludes this. He says, all in all, Mount Vernon, as it is today, gives visitors an accurate impression of the little paradise that Washington and his wife created. With its superb views, dignified exterior, and carefully planned comforts, and its far-flung network of farms, it forms one of the most desirable estates in America and was one of the best run. Had Washington not been twice called to public service each time for eight years and then been able to devote his life to working up his lands and adding to them, it is likely he would have achieved distinction as one of colonial America's most far-sighted and successful farmers. Well, that's all we have time for today's program. But next time, we're going to bring back the 60-plus panel to discuss George Washington's vision for America. And you're going to see that that, uh, it's really patterned after what he envisioned for uh, Mount Vernon. So remember, our third and final book in this series is Hero, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia. You can buy this book at Amazon.com. You can also find a used copy of the book at abebooks.com. Of course, you can also check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can also follow JBL on on Twitter at jbliteratureone. One. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. And remember, you can leave me a comment at Facebook. And actually, I have some comments from Facebook to read you the next time. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.